Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Imagine this. I don't really know how to start this segment. Let me let me do this. The death penalty. So think about that. We've had a lot of discussions over the years about the death penalty. Injustice and justice systems. So the death penalty, is it ever appropriate when it comes to justice? Now, following the mass shootings and killings in the United States, most specifically talked about over the last couple of weeks, have been the killings in Buffalo, New York, at the grocery store, and uh, at Parkland School, School in Florida. The Parkland School shooter is on trial now. He may face the death penalty. And uh, there's also the possibility that a Buffalo, New York ju- jury may return the death penalty. Um, so is, is it ever an appropriate piece of justice, a justice tool? Ron Dalton is a former Newfoundland bank manager. He was found guilty of secondary murder of his wife. Now think about this. Mr. Dalton was 32 years of age at the time. Found guilty of murdering his wife. Was sentenced to prison for life. Uh, Was in prison for eight years when eventually it was discovered that he did not commit the murder. It took 12 years in all, in total, to exonerate Mr. Dalton. And uh, he is the co-president of Innocence Canada now. Ron, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I I was trying to think of the first question I want to ask you. And the one that keeps coming back to me is this. What was the moment like when you were found guilty of, when you were convicted in court of murdering your wife? What was that moment like? I I guess the best word for it is pretty devastating, Roy. you, You never expect to be found guilty of something that in this case, never happened, but something that you didn't do. And, of course, that that moment will be seared in my mind forever. I can always recall my mother in the back of the courtroom screeching. And, and uh, with, within an hour or so uh, of being found guilty, I was being shipped off to a, a penitentiary in Newfoundland, a provincial facility, to await uh, processing into a maximum security prison in, in New Brunswick. Newfoundland didn't then or still doesn't have any federal prisons. So here you were, a 32-year-old father of three kids. Your wife had just died. You had nothing to do with her death. And yet they find you guilty of murder. And now you're separated from everything you know. And you're sh- shipped off to a maximum, well, provincial institution and then to uh, to a maximum security federal institution. Um, maybe we should talk a bit about it. I mean, I'm just trying to think of what you're going through. First, you'll lose your wife. And anyone who's uh, lost a spouse, right? If, if, there's, if there's any consolation, I, I always look back and said I had my biggest loss up front. Yeah. My, my wife of 11 years, uh, she was only 31 years old when she died. We had three young children. And, you know, she went to uh, get up one morning, and uh, before she went to bed that night, she had passed away. 
and I spent the night sitting up with my a couple of family friends and, and our family doctor trying to figure out how I was going to explain to uh, three young children that the two oldest children at least were six and nine at the time the youngest was only 18 months old would never comprehend what had gone on and of course I wasn't able to comprehend it myself so it was difficult to explain to them and then the day only got worse yeah uh, be- before 24 hours had uh, had elapsed from my wife's passing, I was in custody, and, and another five or six hours later was being arrested and charged with second-degree murder. I mean, it's just mind-numbing. You hear yourself pr- pronounced guilty of murder by a jury while you're mourning the, the death of your wife. Um, so you spend eight years in... What did what did they uh, sentence you to, Ron? Was it life? Uh, if you're... Found guilty of first or second degree murder, you get an automatic life sentence. The only determination in second degree is, is the judge will set the minimum period you have to serve before you're eligible for parole between 10 and 25 years. And without having a sentencing hearing, he gave me the minimum sentence that he could. But that was a 10-year minimum before I'd be allowed to apply for parole. And I served eight and a half years of that before my conviction was overturned on appeal. And then a second trial was ordered, and that uh, took a little over two years to happen. So my wife passed away in 1988. It was the summer of 2000 before I was finally uh, acquitted. Good grief. Um, and if you, really, if you really want to get a picture of how much time that involves, our six-year-old daughter had just graduated kindergarten uh, a couple months before her mother died, and I made her high school graduation by about an hour and a half after the jury came back in 2000. I was, I was in uh, Newfoundland, and, and she was living in Prince Edward Island with my family then, so I had a, a day and a half's drive to get there. The jury came back on a Saturday afternoon, acquitted me, and I spent uh, a day and a half getting back to uh, Prince Edward Island, and I got there about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and she graduated from high school that evening. So oh, wow. People can just imagine what, what goes on between the ages of 6 and 18. Yeah between kindergarten and grade one, all of the things that you missed, but that she missed as well, and, and the other children, her brothers. You know, it was the yeah. first time in 12 years that she could look out in the audience and see a family member there, or see one of her parents, rather. There was always family members there. I was kind of blessed that the, my sister and brother-in-law stepped up with their three children to look after my ch- three children for 10 years when I wasn't around, mm-hmm. which is a better situation than a lot of people I, I encountered inside ran into, be they guilty or innocent. Yeah, a lot of them lost contact with their families and never were able to keep in touch. So, yeah. in in my case, I as I said earlier, I had the biggest loss up front, but the best and worst parts about being in prison certainly the the worst part was being separated from my three children. I was used to living with them on a day to day basis, and I would see them on an approximately once a month for the next eight and a half years. But the other side of that coin is that was the best part is that I had a focus beyond the prison walls. So rather than getting all wrapped up in all of the games that go on inside of prisons uh, of any level, but particularly in a maximum security prison, uh, I had something to keep myself focused on. There was, there was something outside the prison walls that allowed me to uh, not necessarily accept but tolerate some of what goes on in, in prisons. Mm-hmm. It was an inexperienced doctor who made uh, a grave error it in, was, yeah. It was a yeah. hospital pathologist with, with no forensic training. This guy used to run the lab in a children's hospital and was used to dealing with tissue samples and blood samples and things like that. But 
had no forensic training. And as it happened back in 1988, and not much different today, uh, Newfoundland has very few homicides, which is a good thing, unless you're trying to develop an expertise in, in that field. Mm-hmm. So he had very, very little experience. He had no training and had been appointed to the job a year or so prior to that, uh, following the uh, air crash in Gander. So, so he, he thought he had a homicide on his hand, literally testified that he thought he was uh, had a bit of Quincy, if, if you remember the old I do. TV show where the Quincy was the pathologist who yeah. also solved the crimes within you know, 45 minutes, and he kind of thought that it was his job to not only perform an autopsy, but he should solve the crime while he was at it, and told the police officers who attended the autopsy that they should go talk to the husband, which they immediately did. And All that was required at the time was to get a second opinion from someone who was qualified. And we would find out 10 years later when we're preparing for a retrial that there was discussions among the police officers that night uh, about, you know, stepping back a little bit. There was no rush. I wasn't going any place. And, and if this had been a homicide, there was only my wife and I and, and our three children who were sleeping in bed that night. You know, I, I made the, the top of the suspect list had there been a homicide. Mm-hmm. But if they had taken the time just to confirm that it was a homicide, then none of this would have happened. And it was um, it was an experienced pathologist who uh, who eventually, after eight years, um, was able to testify. Well, it was, in co- it, yes, sorry to cut you off, Roy. It was actually nine experienced pathologists because at the first trial we called a board-certified forensic pathologist from Philadelphia right. to come up and testify, saying the first guy was wrong. And at the end of the first trial, the local crown was able to turn to the jury and said, who are you going to believe, this local guy who did the autopsy or the hired gun from Philadelphia that looked at a few pictures? Given that kind of a stark choice, they said, well, we'll, we'll go with the local guy. Yeah. Oh, my uh, goodness. When, when the conviction was overturned, uh, I had a different lawyer who was uh, much more involved and, and not about to, uh, to see this kind of a miscarriage happen again, and we literally went around the world and got the pathologist who wrote the uh, the textbooks. We ended up with nine of them. We went to Wales. We went to Northern Ireland. We went to uh, Vancouver. We brought the original guy back from Philadelphia. Uh, so we, we overkill, perhaps, but we weren't taking a chance the second time around. No. My first my first trial lasted six weeks. The second one lasted nine months. Ron, uh, very, uh, little, very little doubt at the, at the end of the second. Yeah, trial. we have to take a break in a second, but your wife sure. passed away from, from breakfast cereal. Uh, yes, she was She was nibbling on some uh, dry breakfast cereals or watching the uh, evening news. And got caught in her trachea and she yes, well, passed I, away. You would, back, in, back in the day, I would have thought you get an obstruction in your throat, you clear it, and, and you're breathing again. But uh, uh, as I was to learn, uh, the choking mechanism is much more complicated than that. Your, your yeah. muscles will actually seize up upon themselves, and people have literally choked on pieces of dust uh, or, or a little feather or something from a pillow. It, it doesn't have to be a physical obstruction to trigger a spasm in your throat that will close off your breathing. Yeah, I have to take a quick and break then we, here. Then we had a medical misadventure when we got to the hospital 10 or 15 minutes later. The local emergency room was uh, uh, under the care of a medical student from Ireland who was performing a summer locum, small town, Newfoundland again, and uh, this poor chap was faced with the dilemma of either trying to intubate this young woman who was having some breathing difficulties or wait and call in the anesthesiologist who in a small rural hospital would have been the one doing most of the intubations and and unfortunately he didn't think he had the time to do it which was probably the right call to call somebody in so he attempted it 
but he had never intubated a live patient before and ended up putting the breathing tube uh, into her esophagus, leading to her stomach rather than into her trachea, oh, leading to her lungs, and then he sealed it in place, sealed her fate at the same time. And the, the poor hospital pathologist, when he did the autopsy the next day, called the ER guy down and showed him the mistake he had made and showed him the tube where it was still sealed into the wrong area, but still came to the conclusion that this was a, a strangulation case, you know, that... Mm-hmm. Ron, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. Absolute nightmare. Now, in other jurisdictions, you might have been sentenced to death, and you might have been Uh, put to death. In many jurisdictions, including our own prior to 1976. And you might have been put to death death before that eight-year period was up. So there's talk about capital punishment in these cases in uh, in Buffalo, New York, and in uh, in, uh, Parkland in Florida. What about the issue of, of capital punishment? You might have been put to death. Your great friend, David Milgard, who's on this program on a number of occasions as well, and very sadly died earlier this year, more than likely would have been put to death. He was in prison for 23 years. There's always talk about capital punishment. Provide us a perspective, please. Well, uh, you'll you'll never uh, uh, convert me to a proponent of capital punishment. Uh, David certainly was sentenced at a time when we still had a death penalty in this country. Before David, 10 years before David, David was sentenced in 1969. In 1959, we sentenced a 14-year-old to hang, uh, you know, for a, a crime that he did not commit. We, we didn't have the political will to carry through in, in the Stephen Truscott case and actually hang him. But it wasn't because there was any questions uh, in the government's mind about his, his guilt. We've, we've seen the, uh, the discussions, the papers from the federal cabinet of the day when uh, Diefenbaker was prime minister and they're considering whether to commute this young boy's sentence or not. And he asks his justice minister who assures him there's no question about his guilt. The only question is whether politically we'll lose too many votes by hanging a 14-year-old child. And they decided to commute it to life. Uh, in David's case, David was only 16 when he was arrested and they didn't seek the death penalty at, at that time. But certainly uh, many of us, and, and there's about 40 people in this country now who have had wrongful convictions uh, for homicide overturned, and any one of us could have been put to death. Yeah. And we've had cases in, in the United States. I mean, I, I attend, uh, uh, they, they do an annual conference in the U.S. Uh, they have a network of innocence uh, networks down there, and they, they hold an annual conference uh, until COVID came along. But I've met people who spent 25 or 30 years on death row just waiting to be executed until they were able to prove their innocence. And we've had some that DNA has proven were executed who were not innocent, or sorry, who were not guilty. We've proven it after the fact. Right. So certainly any time that there's any question, if you can't get it right, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. Uh, I would be morally opposed to doing it, period. I don't think anyone has the right to take another life, including the state, or the government. Tell, tell me this. Um, the eight years you were in prison, and you know the system well after spend, spending all that time and being co-president of Innocence Canada. By the way, what's the, web, what's the website for Innocence Canada? Uh, InnocenceCanada.ca. .ca, okay. And actually, uh, when, when you were talking about this could happen to anybody, when we're fundraising, one of the, one of the T-shirts that we've created 10 or 12 years ago now was it, it happened to me, it could happen to, to you. Okay. You're, you're right in that. Yeah, innocencecanada.ca. Check it out, folks. Um, we only have thirty seconds here. On did you did you meet people you came convinced were innocent of the crime they've been convicted of and imprisoned for? 
I met a number of them while I was still in prison, including one that they had used the same pathologist in my case a couple of years after the fact. Oh, no. That, that pathologist from Newfoundland to Nova Scotia in a case where the gentleman's wife had been buried without an autopsy, and they decided a couple of years later that perhaps this was a homicide, and he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to a life sentence with a 25-year minimum to serve. Oh, my. He and, he and I put our heads together when I was working on my appeal, and shortly after mine, we were able to successfully appeal his as well. Okay. Ron, yes, we'll, we'll have I've to... met a number of them. We'll have to pick this up again. We need to talk more about this. Sure. That's It's very important. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.